Hello and welcome to this week's roundtable edition of The Bunker. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Stick the kettle on, if you can afford it. On the show this week, will soaring energy prices be voters' light bulb moment? Has Brexit been a tremendous success? For the Republic of Ireland, it would seem so. Also, we go inside Europe's largest and very secretive arms fair. And finally, is France rightly angry at the Anglosphere's sub-snub? We take a deep dive. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us again. We hope you're enjoying our burgeoning family of podcasts. You can help spread the word about The Bunker by forwarding the episode link to three friends who you think will enjoy it. It's super easy. The share button is right there on your app. And in case you missed it, please check out The Culture Bunker. I co-presented it last Saturday and it was immense fun. We'll be releasing a new episode every weekend covering music, TV, film, books and more. Now let's meet the panel. First up, welcome back to Recovering Diplomat, Arthur Snell. Hello. Arthur, the Taliban issued a circular on Friday calling male students back to school, sparking fears they would, as is their form, bar girls and women from education. On Saturday, they responded to international criticism by claiming this was just so they could establish a secure transportation system for female students. What do you think is going on? Well... It's a bit hard to know. Uh, one of the things they also said was that they needed to set up separate um, female educational institutes. But actually, in almost every context in Afghanistan, uh, women and men study separately from one another. So it's not entirely clear. I think what is going on is the fact that a group of people who never actually expected to control the country are now having to grapple with the messy reality of running an education system, running a health service, you know, running all mm. kinds of boring governmental uh, services. And it is more complicated than it looks, and they're grappling with that. So you, you don't think it's a purely an excuse? You think there may be something to it, basically? Well, I, I don't think they are planning to shut down all female education as they did last time they were in mm. power. But I am sure that there is a lot of argument happening inside the Taliban about just how much or how little they'll allow of it. Also with us, hello to journalist, author and bunker favourite Marie Leconte. Hello, thanks for having me. Marie, Labour is gearing up for its conference this week amid some predictable acrimony, it has to be said. Is this Starmer's last chance to get the party to unite? Huh. I'd say yes and no. So I think <clears throat> I would say my opinion on this is that I don't actually believe the Labour Party can ever be united. And I'm not convinced uh, the Labour Party has ever been united. Um, so actually him trying to do that is probably just a fool's errand, really. Mm. Um, but, you know, but, but that being said, in terms of his position as leader of the Labour Party, I think he, he is oddly safe. So I think on the one hand, it's a bit of an odd one because this conference feels very high stakes because it's his first one. But equally, you know, I don't see anyone or any wing of the party trying to challenge him to the leadership anytime soon. So he's also quite safe. So again, we're so like both sort of like very high stakes and quite low stakes at the same time. Mm. Do you think there are any particular pressure points that might explode during the conference? Um, well, I mean, so looking at the news over the past few days, I would say I think the two 
quite obvious things would be so John McDonnell um, called on the party to reinstate Jeremy Corbyn a few days ago. I suspect there's going to be quite bigger conference, so a bit of a fight between the left of the party and the and the rest of the party. Then the other obvious thing would be uh, transgender rights, I think, um, you know, with the kind of Rosie Duffield announcing she was not going to Labour conference uh, a few days ago. So I think that's something the party is massively split on. And then the last thing as well, which is more nerdy, but so Labour for a Green New Deal had tried to put forward a motion at conference, um, which has been rejected. And I think basically Twitter, like Labour Twitter has been extremely angry about this and it's, but, but it's quite <laughs> unclear basically whether that's going to transform into actual real people at Labour conference being angry about this or if it's one of these things that's just going to sort of like stay on Twitter. Mm. Labour Twitter is traditionally very angry about everything. Um, our special guest this week is Tony Connolly, Europe editor of Ireland's national broadcaster RTE, author of the book Brexit and Ireland, and host of the Brexit Republic podcast. Welcome to the bunker, Tony. Great to be here, Alex. Thank you. Tony, Andrew Neil has formally resigned from his position as the boss of GB News and seems to be working hard to deny it ever happened and mend fences. Um, meanwhile, Olympic fence kicker Piers Morgan has signed a deal with Fox for a nightly global show. What do you make of all this media churn? Well, I mean, the, the I suppose it was always going to be a big ambition for a UK equivalent to, to Fox News uh, for Andrew Neil and and for that whole GB News setup, mm. uh, because mm. I, I just think culturally the UK is not the same as America. I think something that like that would just attract so much negative attention mm. from a lot of different people that it was always going to be, you know, under fire from the start, under pressure. And I think they had a lot of technical and staffing problems. So. In, in a sense, I'm not surprised that things have gone the way they have for the, for the organization. But I, you know, I, I think the coarsening of media is a thing that is to be regretted. And just because it is fashionable in certain quarters, it doesn't mean it's a good thing. There, there may be an appetite for it if we see the how social media has taken hold of the media discourse and the news agenda. You know, we, we may see this as a salutary tale for broadcasting in, in the UK. Mm. It's a much smaller market as well. So, I mean, practically, you only have to capture a tiny slice of the US market and you have millions of viewers. While, you know, the, the smaller the country gets, literally, you have to capture a larger and larger segment. Now, you work for the equivalent of the BBC in Ireland. That's fair, isn't it? Yes, um, do you face accusations of bias as regularly as prominent BBC colleagues? I mean, it, it wouldn't be as personalised as it is for certain BBC correspondents, but there's no doubt that RTE has been attacked um, in Ireland as being the purveyor of fake news. This has become a, a slogan, a cliche, and obviously I would say it's entirely incorrect, but it is when it comes to the far right or the far left uh, or the, I suppose, the radical left in Ireland, uh, a lot of Sinn Féin supporters say would, would accuse RTE of pandering to business interests or pandering to particular political parties. Uh, and then on the right, RTE has been 
really heavily involved in 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 reporting on the COVID pandemic, on the vaccination program, as you would expect, and mm. it has come in for. Uh, abuse there as well. I mean, you also have the kind of religious right in Ireland who have often boycotted RTE or mm. stage protests outside RTE for religious religious reasons if they feel that something somebody has said something blasphemous. I was subject to a bit of abuse by a, a religious magazine one time when I... Oh, what did you say? I said that John Paul II was more loved than Benedict, Pope Benedict, by, by the faithful. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And there was a, an immediate call. How uh, could you? I know. I, what was I thinking? Um, but the, the the funny thing was that the the magazine in question said that there should be a, a boycott of Avonmore milk, <laughs> which happened to be the kind of mid the mid stage sponsor of the nine o'clock news uh, in Ireland. And I, so I, when I got home, my Twitter timeline had melted down with references to milk, and I had no idea what it was about. Um, but it was a, a, obviously an offhand remark that I deeply regret that I suggested Pope John Paul II was perhaps more a, a, more of a loved individual than, than Pope Benedict, but there you go. We will hear much more from Tony throughout the show. It seems, to paraphrase a famous tabloid headline, that the last person leaving Britain will not need to turn the lights off. Over the last few weeks, four small energy suppliers have announced they are to cease trading. In the last few days, a fifth has asked for a government bailout, and several others are signalling that things are looking bleak. According to Oil and Gas UK, wholesale prices for gas are up 250% since January, including a 70% rise since August alone. The government is blaming international volatility, which seems worryingly vague. The industry is blaming the green levy and the price cap, the two things they have been trying to do away with even before the crisis. Coincidentally, I am sure. Remainers are blaming Brexit and leavers are blaming everything except Brexit. Arthur, what is your understanding of this? Why have energy prices soared over the past few months? Well, I think there is a little bit of truth to what the Prime Minister said. That may not be a very common thing, but um, there is a lot of demand in the global economy after the period of sort of COVID lockdowns, which of course have been all over the place. Economies have been reopening. So in Asia in particular, very high demands as those economies have gone back to sort of higher levels of activity. And then the other issue is that... uh, Gas traders are worried that there aren't going to be enough stocks for the European, for the Northern Hemisphere winter. And so prices are rising as people try to plan ahead for that. And that's partly to do with there being lower supplies in Russia than there are normally. So there's a lot of these factors that that play in and then you get the market perhaps overreacting to a perceived lack of gas as we look ahead to the colder Mm -hmm. temperatures. So so you buy the Boris Johnson explanation that it's like everyone putting the kettle on at the end of a TV program and that things will get better as the market starts to sort itself out. That you, you find some comfort in that, do you? Well, I find a bit of comfort in it. I think where where I differ is, of course, it comes down to then how dependent is your country particularly on gas? Now, mm. If you look across Europe, you know, France, for example, as is well known, has very high levels of nuclear energy. So they're quite well insulated from it. Some of the Scandinavian countries have got very good renewable energy. Um, 
uh, whereas the countries in Europe that are really sort of gas dependent, uh, Italy, Netherlands, UK, very much. Now, this is not talking about dependent on Russian gas, but I'm talking about gas in general. Sure. Um, and so we will be more affected than some other countries. And of course, uh, this then plays into wider debates about Europe, about European energy markets, and whether or not you know the UK is properly integrated into those. Hmm. Um, ordinarily, when an energy supplier goes belly up, Ofgem reallocates its customers to other suppliers who take on their deals, including any credit. With the sector creaking, however, and the price of energy soaring, many think a more widespread intervention will be needed. Marie, the government is making positive bailoutish noises, including floating the possibility of nationalizing some companies. What do you think of this latest bit of accidental socialism by a conservative government? <laughs> um, I'm not, you know what, I'm not convinced so far this will happen. So if you look at what Kwasi Karteng was saying um, earlier today in the press and in the chamber, he was clearly, you know, kind of going like, actually, some of these companies will almost certainly fail. And that's life, isn't it? Which actually sounds, I think, a lot more like a conservative government, like a traditional conservative government. So I don't know, we'll see. I mean, I'm actually, you know, as, as a Bulb uh, customer myself, I think Bulb is on um, the cusp, actually, of just kind of um, falling into administration. Yes, I think they were um, the one that asked for a bailout this weekend. Uh, yes, and they are the sixth yeah. biggest energy provider, I believe. Um, mm. But but still, you know, I don't, I I, I don't know, I, I I wouldn't be surprised by anything. To be fair, at this stage, but at, as it stands, I think that the noise that the government is making probably go more towards the, uh, you know, that bit from Shrek, like some of you may die, <laughs> and that's a risk <laughs> I'm willing to take. <laughs> there will be adequate food, as uh, Dominic Raab once said. Um, could could events like these provide wider support for a renationalization re of industries? Could they be a bit of a gift to labor? Um, you know, nationalizing, renationalizing rather industries like electricity and gas, and especially railway services, is already very popular with voters. It is. And I think, to be honest, you know, I, I was never the biggest fan, but... I, you know, my heart does slightly go out to Jeremy Corbyn and Don McDonnell because I think that they were trying to make that point for effectively five years. And, you know, everyone went, you know, we'd basically be the USSR if we renationalized everything. <laughs> um, and now they're kind of, you know, both out. Um, and, and yeah, and suddenly, you know, as you said, you know, the government just is kind of renationalizing everything. So starting with trains and obviously perhaps some further things. So I don't know. I mean, I think what'll be interesting is seeing actually what Keir Starmer does with that, because obviously he's very keen to distance himself from the previous Labour leadership. Um, but at the same time, you know, you do have people like Edmund Bansell in the Shadow Cabinet, and I think that is someone who would support the renationalization of industries. So I yeah, basically I suspect it will depend on what Labour um decides to do. But that being said, you know, in terms of just public opinion, I would not be surprised at all if that were to become more popular as a policy. Mm. It is interesting to note over the last few years, you know, what things can only be funded apparently by taxing um, poor working people like social care and for what sort of things money is just magically found. So to avoid the, the predictable um, Twitter replies, shout out to the MMT crowd, we hear you. Um, Tony, Various charts were making their way around social media over the weekend, showing that the UK is paying 
much, much more than any EEA region for energy. Why is the problem not as acute in other European countries, do you think? Well, as, as Arthur pointed out there, France is uh, you know, heavily dependent on nuclear and um, that has, in some senses, insulated them from the, the worst excesses of energy prices. But, I mean, there, like Europe is uh, worryingly, worryingly dependent on Russian gas mm. um, and that is all part of a, a geopolitical uh, chess game involving Germany, Ukraine, um, Italy, and the whole question of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is, is a highly sensitive one for Germany because it's something that is being seen as rewarding uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think I think Europe is is not entirely out of the woods, uh, but, we, you know, Europe does have a single internal energy market that tends to foster investment between member states. Energy can be shifted around when there's a deficit in one country and a surplus in another. And, you know, before Brexit happened, the UK was dependent uh, on the, the EU for about 12% of its gas and 5% of electricity. So those interconnectors are now going to face a scenario where they may attract less investment Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that, that could push up prices. Um, and, and, but again, the UK will obviously deny that Brexit is anything to do with this, uh, this particular problem at the moment. Well, it's been an interesting one because I think the debate in, in the UK gets stuck on whether Brexit is the cause of something or not. And we never discuss whether membership of the European Union was a solution to something or not. Is that a fair point? Yeah, I, I mean... Look, in general, you know, the, the, the economic logic of a single market is that you lower barriers and you uh, you encourage investment and trade flows more freely. And the same applies to energy. Um, so I think there's bound to be uh, an adverse effect for the UK leaving the EU's uh, single energy market. Whether that is already filtering through at this stage of the post-Brexit era bit hard to say, but uh, certainly Remainers will make that point. Mm. Arthur, gas is also fundamental to the production of CO2, which is an essential in much of the food supply chain. Is there a danger that fuel poverty and food poverty will meet, making this a sort of winter of discontent 2.0? I think there is a danger. It's amazing how We've all become experts in the UK carbon dioxide market in, in, <laughs> in the last three days. I, I speak confident, confidently on this topic. Um, but I think that there are loads of inflationary pressures here in the UK. And of course, they exist in other places. But it's easy to understand why they're more intense here, because we've also put a, a big shock on, on our you know external trade position. And we can argue about you know, uh, how many lorry drivers there are or other factors. But we know that there's a food supply issue at the moment. And of course, that's affecting prices. And then you've got this other factor in the mix. So yes, it is, I fear, going to be a difficult winter, particularly for those on low incomes. Marie, how much blame for the price hikes will be heaped, rightly or wrongly, on the government? Um, Will there be a political price to pay? What I'm thinking is that you know, people's lack of willingness to analyze things very deeply 
you know, the, the, the very same factor that saw Brexit happen and saw Johnson come into power might now work the other way, where people actually don't give a stuff what the reasons are for the gas uh, uh, wholesale price hike and, you know, the rise in national insurance. They just look at their pocket and they end up feeling a lot poorer and they blame the current government. Yes, well, I think, you know, a, a cost of living crisis is probably one of the biggest dangers to any government. Um, and as you pointed out, obviously, there's, you know, obviously like the, the kind of energy prices rising, extra taxes, uh, some inflation, etc. So I think, you know, it is going to be a tough winter for a lot of people. Um, and also, I mean, you know, even coupled to the universal credit um, cut. Oh, the universal credit will be huge for people if their energy prices. Um, I mean, exactly. You know, I, I yeah, I, I earn a decent living, and I was generally looking at the prices today, thinking I'm not really sure how I'm going to be uh, able to afford heating this winter. So I cannot mm. imagine what it'll be like for people on UC. Um, so again, you know, I think all of these things together, like that, that is the sort of stuff that I think drives people against the government. Um, you know, so it's really that in bins, that bins and potholes, I think, tend to be the things that make people angry. Because that is the thing you do think about every day. And again, as you sort of pointed out, it doesn't really matter how political you are. Like if the pound in your pocket gets you a lot less far than it used to, like everyone will notice that. So yeah, no, I, I do think that this could actually be a tough winter for the government. Last week, the UK announced its intention to delay most checks on incoming goods in what Brexit Minister Lord Frost called a more pragmatic timetable. Checks will now be phased in next year, starting in January, with some not due to bite until July 2022. This means up to two years of businesses in the UK facing full checks for most of their exports, while the doors are largely open to imports. If Frost and Johnson ever catch the incompetent so-and-sos that negotiated the original timetable, there will be hell to pay. Tony, is this becoming a farce now? How do Brussels look at this self-imposed, ever-extending sort of Brexit purgatory? I mean, certainly the, what's happened with the, you know yet more delays on the UK side confirms a, a long-running belief in Brussels that there was no real preparation for Brexit. The entire UK system was not really conditioned to understanding the full realities of leaving the single market and the customs union. Mm. And of course, we saw very graphically three or four years of political chaos and gridlock uh, since the vote happened. Um, so so in, in a sense, I think Brussels and EU capitals are simply rolling their eyes and thinking, here we go again. But at the same time, this is another breather for European companies who are able to send their products to the UK without the friction at the border that UK companies encounter when they send their products to the EU. So you can see how maddening this must be for the food and drink industry in the UK. Um, a, a more serious issue, I think, is the Northern Ireland Protocol and how relations are going there. The UK has once again extended grace periods indefinitely and unilaterally um, and have threatened to trigger Article 16 of the protocol, which would be, again, a serious escalation in, in relations. Of course, the UK is saying that the protocol is not working. It's undermining the Good Friday Agreement. It's alienating unionists. Um, so there is quite an ugly standoff between Brussels and London on that issue. Yeah. They, they are at the moment, 
contemplating how they would respond if the UK triggers Article 16. Uh, and that could lead to, again, legal action or countermeasures, trade measures. Mm-hmm. It, it could, you know, it could escalate in a rather nasty fashion once again. Do, do you think there's a difference then in how patiently you are willing to be about the Northern Ireland protocol stuff being deferred and how patient they're willing to be about uh, uh, sort of the incoming export controls being deferred? I mean, obviously, it's not up to them to be patient. The UK can suspend those indefinitely. But are they seen as a sort of trade-off that even though the whole Northern Ireland protocol thing is going to hell, um, at least a, a sort of commercial opportunity is being created for European companies to export stuff to the UK as if it were still a member of the EU. So I, I don't think there's any real connection between the delay in checks and controls and how the UK and the EU are handling the whole Northern Ireland protocol issue. I mean, certainly David Frost has said that if only the EU would fundamental fundamentally rethink how it's implementing the protocol uh, make some really substantial changes then the world would be a sweet and delightful place and the eu and the uk would be getting on famously on every other issue mm. um and I, th- I think this is going to be a very difficult autumn and winter uh even though the eu has definitely decided to try and tone down the rhetoric, to try not to have you know endless punch-ups and deadlines, um, and and they do they they do not want the protocol to become another issue that simply dominates the EU agenda mm. like it has done in do, recent years. Tony, do you think there's anything to the notion that the UK was somehow bullied into the protocol? This has this has become quite popular uh, recently by Brexit commentate Brexit friendly commentators, including recently Theresa May's former advisor Raoul Ruparel and Conservative peer Peter Lilly. Um, was there a point at which the EU overpressed its advantage and muscled? the UK into a, a, an agreement that wasn't sustainable? I mean, I, I don't think anybody really had conceptualized what this would, would look like in real life once you apply something like the protocol on the ground and one side of the population, namely the unionists, would suddenly and startlingly feel that their identity had been uh, completely undermined, that they... that you know, the normal commercial interaction that they have with the rest of the UK was going to be, Mm. you know, overturned. Um, But, I mean, you know, Brexit created all these unusual, uh, unprecedented scenarios. And, I mean, can you you be bullied in a negotiation? Well, maybe that's what negotiations are about, you know, the, the, the extent to which you can resist being bullied or you can uh, try and bully the other side. I think the UK set out in this process at a disadvantage because they had completely not foreseen the the Irish question. They hadn't prepared any strategic defence of their position on Ireland, but they didn't seem to realise that unless they went for a soft Brexit, then a hard border would have to land somewhere. And because Boris Johnson and David Frost went for a hard Brexit, then there's very little sympathy in Brussels or in Dublin for this idea that the UK was bullied. I mean, like we've been through the issues on this 
you know, day in, day out, week in, week out for, for five or six years. I mean, certainly the way the protocol was was concluded the second time around in October 2019, it did happen at, at speed. It was it was cooked up in, in a period of a couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, Boris Johnson knew that um, yeah. and, and nobody had a gun to his head. Uh, he can complain about the Remainer Parliament and the Ban Act, but ultimately... You know he's he's representing the British state in a in an international treaty, mm. and he has to decide what is best for him and his party and Northern Ireland and the UK in the long term. And he made his choices. Mm. Um, Marie, is there a sense of resignation that the EU will once more, still perhaps forever? have to be the adult in the room when it comes to the Brexit fallout in general? Huh. I mean, yes and no. I think looking at kind of the political side from Westminster, I think what's been quite interesting over the past few weeks, actually, has been people watching, you know, with a degree of bafflement, uh, Michel Barnier deciding to run for the French presidency um, and just going quite insane on immigration and arguably quite Brexity effectively on immigration and kind of running on a platform of, you know, we need to control our borders, etc. Um, but also, I think there was a piece he did a few days ago where he actually kind of misunderstood a bit the Great Friday Agreement. The good... <laughs> sorry. The... sorry, I just upgraded it in my head. <laughs> I've got the giggles now. I'm really sorry. <laughs> the amazing Friday Agreement. <laughs> Uh, but yes, actually, there's kind of this sense that actually, you know, is the EU really... I, I, I feel like it's actually kind of reshaping in real time the view Westminster has of the EU and the kind of the EU team in the context of the Brexit uh, negotiations mm. and, and the kind of, you know, post-Brexit relationship. It was a new poll for Best for Britain um, out this week that shows 53% of voters think Brexit has created more problems than it has solved. And only 15% think it's a, it has solved more problems than it created. Is Do you think that tanker is beginning to turn around? Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I, yes and no, again, because I think that, yes, in some sense, more and more people are realising that actually, you know, Brexit is not especially fun. But I think there's kind of two other things at play there. The first one being that I would assume that the vast majority of people have no interest in reopening that specific can of worms and kind of feel that, you know, it's, it's been done and it's done now. But clearly quite, a, you know, quite a few people did vote for Brexit knowing that it would just be quite bad. So I think that in a sense as well, you know, these people are not going to shift. So I think that combination of those people plus the people saying, actually, you know, like, that is not something I wanted and it's not going well, but it's been done now means that, I'm not really sure those polls are busy, especially significant. Mm -hmm. Arthur, Lord Frost said, uh, and I quote, we want businesses to focus on their recovery from the pandemic rather than have to deal with new requirements at the border. Why was this not evidence when people like us were begging the government to extend the tra transitional period? Well, I think you have to take that statement with an enormous sack of salt because, of course, there are new requirements at the border if you're an exporter. If you're a British cheesemaker or a British musician trying to export goods or services to, to the European Union, there are all kinds of new requirements. So the idea that us failing to be able to police our own borders is, is some kind of business promotion operation is nonsensical. And of course, what we will see, not immediately, but over time, 
is what a competitive disadvantage British businesses are now at, so that those that are trying are export led will, will face all kinds of problems. And of course, the ones here may be undercut by the fact that we've thrown open our borders. Um, it's a great time to be a smuggler. <laughs> you're not going to hear that that often. Tony, you're based in Brussels, but from those on the ground back home, how's the Republic of Ireland finding Brexit? Uh, I mean, I suppose because the, the, the full range of checks hasn't been brought to bear yet uh, in Ireland, then, you know, there, there is a bit of a sense that, that, that the worst is yet to come. But the exports from Ireland to the UK which will be hit, especially in the agri-food sector. I mean, we export something like €4 billion Euro worth of beef to the UK every year. Mm. Now, once the UK starts putting in place its own uh, ex- export health certificate regime, its its own SPS rules, then um, you know those exports are going to be hit badly. Um, but in the meantime, exports from Ireland to the UK actually increased by 7% in mm. the the first six months of this year. Um, and then, of course, uh, trade on an all-island basis, north and south and south to north, increased as well because a lot of firms in the south were, were getting products from, from the north uh, so they, they wouldn't have to go through the hassle of getting them from, from GB. Um, so you, you've had a 40% increase in exports from, from the south to the north and a 61% increase uh, from north to south. Um, but this, this so, so in in some ways, this is the most integrated the the all island economy has ever been, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, and again, you it, you know the, the problem with this is it it reduces it down to a zero sum game. So if the all island economy is doing well, um, that means that the east west economy is doing badly. So so unionists lose out. But certainly, David Frost has raised the issue of the diversion of trade. Uh, on a north-south basis, away from east-west, as as a reason to trigger Article 16. So, you know, it, it, it's each each part of this trilemma is always laced with a problem somewhere. Uh, so, so this this is what people are looking at. Mm. Arthur, I interviewed Claire Sugden last week, an independent unionist, and she questioned the notion that a border poll is now a matter of when rather than if. She thinks people are skipping several steps ahead. What do you think? Well, I'm slightly nervous as an Englishman with no real right to an opinion on this matter to to question somebody who's who's there in Northern Ireland. But slightly taking on from what Tony was just talking about, it does seem that the, there are lots of external factors which are now pushing in the sort of nationalist direction. But I guess... You're right that there, there are all kinds of obstacles on the way. I don't think anyone is seriously saying that a border poll is foreseeable in, in the near future, but it's easy to see a set of factors. Some of them are economic coming out of this Northern Irish Protocol. Some of them are uh, demographic and some of them are cultural. And it's difficult for me as an observer in another country to see how those things don't point towards a border poll. But Maybe there are other factors that I'm not aware of. Tony, just to finish on a sort of looking forward note, um, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen gave her State of the Union speech last week. What 
What sort of direction is the EU headed without Britain? I'm not inviting you to cover everything, <laughs> just just to indicate whether you think there are areas in which Brexit has actually uh, freed the EU to go in a slightly different direction. Well, Brexit and Britain, neither of them were mentioned once in, in the speech, and that was certainly picked up on. But, you know, we, we are... In, in, in the classic phrase, you know, facing one goddamn thing after another uh, in the EU with the pandemic, with Afghanistan, uh, now with the, the, the French and the Australians and the submarines. And, you know, in normal times, people would have said, well, Britain ha- having left the EU means that the EU can integrate um, at its own pace uh, without having to worry about what the awkward partner Britain is going to do to throw a spanner in the works. But to be honest, you know, the, the, the whole landscape in the EU has been so dominated by the the pandemic and the recovery fund that no one is really seeing things through through that, that prism. I mean, I suppose in terms of Ursula von der Leyen's speech, the most eye-catching stuff was about China and defence. She called for a defence union. And I think Afghanistan was a very sobering moment for the EU once again, having to rely on the Americans or having to rely on uh, one or two key members of NATO to get people out, uh, and the EU not having a military capability to go in and do something in a collective sense. But of course, Europe is very divided on defence. Eastern European countries will not want anything that will duplicate the role that NATO plays. Um, But there is talk of this idea of strategic economy, Europe having to do things more by itself. They're talking about a strategic compass and all these new Mm. uh, pieces of jargon are appearing. Um, But but I I don't think it is clear yet the the real impact of Brexit on European policymaking. I think think the pandemic has meant that everything is just kind of not normal service. Um, So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and with elections in Germany and... Um, France um, fairly in fairly short order. I guess everyone is waiting to see what comes out of those. Covid has forced many large events like Pride to cancel or postpone, but it seems other kinds of guns were allowed to go on display. Last week, London played host to the Defence and Security Equipment International, or DSEI, the largest arms fair in Europe. Frank Andrews was one of the few journalists permitted entry. So my name is Frank Andrews. I'm a news editor at Middle East Eye. One of the world's biggest arms fairs has been taking place in East London over the past week. Um, It's known as the Defence and Security Equipment International. It was my first arms fair. So to be honest, it was like... It was a very surreal experience. On a personal level, walking around these vast hangars on either side of this conference centre, seeing helicopters, drones, um, rifle sights, tanks, people selling ejector seats, it was sort of mind-boggling. Uh, and the, the amount of money there is, is, is really palpable. There are roughly 800 um, what are known as exhibitors, so these are private companies, and this includes all the big ones, so BAE Systems, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, massive British and American and other international companies whose weapon systems have been used by the Saudis in Yemen, by Israel, in Gaza, for example. The British government invites certain states to come along and buy these products. 
countries which are on the UK government's own list of countries flagged as human rights priorities. These included Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Egypt and Iraq. And seven of the invitees have military sectors which have been labelled at critical risk of corruption by Transparency International. And this is Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Iraq again, as well as Morocco, Oman and Qatar. That is apparently not enough of a reason to not invite them back. And the justification for this is that, is first of all, it's billions of pounds, it's, it's money and also it's jobs. So because this industry obviously is very lucrative and that obviously for them takes precedent and is more important than the moral questions and the very practical question of civilians being killed with these products. So this is all happening in, in the context of basically increasing arms proliferation globally. So the AUKUS alliance that was signed in recent days is basically likely to lead to some sort of regional arms race in the Indo-Pacific. Thinking, obviously, in the context of 9-11, 20 years on, the question of, of how effective this industry is and these weapons are. I mean, look at Afghanistan. It's been very effective and very lucrative for a lot of these companies. Pentagon spending has hit more than $14 trillion in the last 20 years, around one third of which has gone to defense contractors. And the way they do it is by convincing people that in the context of more um, proliferation of weapons, they need to buy more and they need to buy better. I'm not necessarily convinced that the products sold here are sort of addressing the fundamental causes of these security issues. And that, that the same goes for the fact that the MI5 had mentioned that there were 31 late stage terrorism strikes foiled in the last four years. This industry has sort of been saying that we need more arms and offensive technology to foil terrorism for the past 20 years. And if it's a growing threat, then perhaps we're not actually addressing the root causes of violent extremism. Marie, are protests against this kind of um, fair effective in any way? But I, I, so the thing is, I don't really think they are, because I think that's kind of something, you know, we talk about every year and every year, and, you know, and, and I mean, absolutely no offence to um, to the correspondent, but every year it's kind of reported on how bad it is and, you know, and how like these awful countries are there and how these awful, awful weapons are being sold there. And every year it continues. But no, so that being said, I think you sort of might may as well end up having some fun with it. So one of my favourite protests, I would say I think probably in London, was the Space Hijackers, who are this kind of quite fun activist group who some years ago decided uh, to drive a tank to the arms fair. Um, <laughs> but again, and they were always quite clever because, you know, so they did start driving a tank there. Tank got stopped, they all got arrested. Turns out that was actually the decoy tank and they had another tank that they did manage to drive much further, um, which again is just the silliest stunt, um, but I just really enjoyed I love the idea of a decoy tank. AUKUS, more like orcs. At the tail end of a cabinet reshuffle last week, Johnson wasn't done for the day. He took the podium, virtually alongside the President of the United States and the Australian PM, to announce a new security trilateral partnership. As part of that partnership, Australia pulled out of an existing multi-billion dollar defence deal with France, agreeing instead to buy nuclear-powered submarines via a new deal with the UK and the US. France described the pact as lacking coherence and accused the three of betrayal. It cancelled various joint events and even recalled its ambassador to the US and Australia for consultation. Arthur, 
What exactly does this agreement involve and, and what does it mean in terms of security? Well, if you put to one side just temporarily the, the issue with France, the agreement itself is fairly simple. It's the US and Australia with the UK agreeing to work together on security in the sort of Indo-Pacific region. No one has mentioned China, but it's very clearly an agreement to enhance Australia's security against China. And in specific terms, it involves delivering to Australia nuclear-powered submarines. These aren't ones with nuclear weapons, but nuclear power means you can go around underwater for ages without coming up for air. And um, particularly if you imagine the vast oceans in that part of the world, that's obviously a good technology to have. So you can see why Australia wants to increase its security. It has faced rather direct threats from China, and, and including sanctions. And of course, it's in a region which faces a lot of tensions over China's increasing economic and military power. Mm, they were quite close trading until fairly recently, and things have gone very, very sour. That's right. And, and this is um, an example of where China seeks to uh, impose fairly sort of um, draconian terms on countries that, that don't play to its agenda. And I think China itself has actually rather misjudged. Uh, one doesn't want always to be um, sort of seeing everything uniquely from one perspective. But I think China's made the mistake of assuming that uh, as it grows more powerful, both in economic and military terms, other countries will dance to its tune. And ultimately, uh, I think the last two years have shown that that isn't necessarily the case. And that's before you get all the extra complications that go with the issues around the Uyghurs being suppressed in Xinjiang, the issues around Hong Kong, and of course, the issues around COVID, which has changed a lot of people's calculus about how they view China. Mm. Marie, uh, France is pretty hopping mad about the pact, saying it has been stabbed in the back. Um, why was the French administration taken by such surprise? And have they a right to be angry about this? Or is this largely pre-election um, overreaction? Um, well, I think, you know, it, it, it's to be fair to France, they were generally taken by surprise. So I think I was going to reading about it the other day. My understanding is that Australia ended up basically being so split on how to tell France um, that it just did not tell France at all. And I think, you know, the French government found out when leaks started coming out in the press. Um, so they, they were, you know, mm. they completely left in the dark. So I think, well, the obvious thing is that, you know, that, that that was a deal that was a lot of money. So I think it was like 56 billion euro. So it's not unreasonable, I think, for the government to be quite sour at having lost that. But I think politically, it's also because I think France kind of sees itself, or at least likes to see itself, I think, as the main kind of EU presence in the Indo-Pacific. So it's got quite a lot of subs there, quite a big presence in the South China Sea. So obviously being kept out of that um, is very bad. And then I guess, you know, there's probably the kind of wider thing as well, especially against the US, of they felt they'd been kept in the dark uh, around Afghanistan too. So so there's clearly, mm -hmm. you know, kind of wider context. Um, but yeah, and, and the other thing as well, I do think that Australia hasn't really helped itself. So and it did make me slightly laugh because it was just such a weird thing to do but I think the deputy PM of Australia um tried tr trying to kind of smooth the um situation argued that reminded France that Australian um troops had helped the country during the two world wars which does not strike me as something you'd do really if you want mm. to calm France down 
I think Gordon Brown put it very well when he said that regardless of what they had agreed should happen, the the announcement of it certainly could have been managed better. Um, When the French foreign minister was asked why the ambassador to the UK wasn't also withdrawn, he replied that France is used to the UK's permanent opportunism and described Johnson as merely the fifth wheel on the carriage. Um, why are Anglo-French relations at such a low point? I mean, that one generally took me by surprise, I have to say. Um, I sort of saw that and I thought, okay, good, it's our turn to be insane. Thinking that, you know, Britain <laughs> was just unhinged for quite a long time. So, no, it's it's nice, you know, just picking up the mantle for just being the unhinged one in the couple. Um, but, uh, but yes, I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Not again, as I said, you know, I'd, I'd not really seen it coming. I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if that, you know, I feel like that bit does strike me as, you know, sort of, you know, well, we're having an election next year. And, and you know, and it's just the same here, I think, of, you know, let, let's bash the English a bit, because that always works with people at home, which, again, mm. you know, British prime ministers have done. So it's a proud tradition, I think, in both British politics and French politics. Tony, uh, Boris Johnson told the press, th- this story broke just before we started recording, he told the press that the Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte, Uh, had offered to mediate on the protocol just before we started recording, the Dutch diplomatic service rubbished that, saying that Rutter had said the opposite. Is the UK in danger of becoming truly friendless in Europe? (laughs) If if they're not friendless already, uh, yeah, I saw that story. I I was pretty amazed that Boris Johnson would say that, knowing that it's just simply not how the EU works, even if Mark Rutte yeah. made some sympathetic noises saying, you know, I'll, I'll talk to the commission, I'll, I'll talk to Ireland. I mean, the, like the way this works is that it, it is all based on the premise of, of European unity from, from the get-go. And the idea that Mark Rutte could go off on a solo run and and fix everything mm. on behalf of Boris Johnson just doesn't make any but it's also political bad. or diplomatic sense. I, I mean, it's bad form as well, isn't it? It reminds me of the instance in the G7 summit where uh, the government leaked to the press some cack-handed com- comment Macron had made in a private sort of conversation about Northern Ireland. This is about it, sausages and... and y- yeah, and, yeah. And, and I just think if you keep doing that sort of thing, well, no one will talk to you in confidence. You will lose the ability to speak to another country's leader, um, trusting that what you say to each other is not going to brief to the press to sort of gain political advantage, which would seem to me a really bad position to be in. Well, don't forget, I mean, trust in Boris Johnson in particular and the UK in general is it's a, is at a low ebb because of the way they've handled the, the protocol. Um, and, you know, there, there are there's a growing number of people in Brussels and in capitals who really now do believe that the UK signed the withdrawal agreement uh, with their fingers crossed, um, knowing that they would somehow not fully implement what they had agreed to implement and that they would embark on a course of disruption and antagonism to try and mm. dismantle what what had been agreed uh, somehow or at least then try to get to claw back what they couldn't get in the negotiation but i mean you know pe- people are highly metabolized in in the eu to 
the nature and character of Boris Johnson, you know, going back a number of years, even when he was foreign secretary. So, you know, they won't be surprised that he would make a throwaway comment like this. Um, but it certainly doesn't help uh, when relations are so low anyway between the EU and the UK on the Irish question. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker. And as usual, it's time for escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books and miscellaneous activities that have acted as a soothing balm for our panellists away from the bruising world of politics? Arthur? Uh, Well, it's not very original, but we are talking about submarines. So obviously it's Vigil, the BBC (laughs) show. I was was behind the curve, so I I had to do the catching up thing and and sort of pretend I hadn't heard all the spoilers on on the various uh, reviews. But uh, yeah, really, I really... you recommend it? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's just—it's a bit different. I mean, ultimately, you could say, well, it's just all they've done is taken a sort of who done it and put it put it underwater. But it's you know, it, it's good. It builds up to a tension. It it keeps you wanting to know what's going to happen. A few good plot twists. So yeah, it was good. How about you, Marie? Um, I have been watching the latest season of The Flash because I am just a huge nerd <laughs> and I just really like TV shows about superheroes. Um, so that, that's very much that. Nothing wrong with that. As you know, on this show, we thoroughly uh, support that choice. How about you, Tony? Well, I didn't get any great bam or escapism at all because I've just finished watching Turning Point uh, 9-11 <laughs> and The War on Terror, the, the Netflix documentary, <laughs> which you know, was five nights of, of um, you know, doom scrolling through the, the, you know, the past 20 years. But I, I thought it was absolutely fantastically done. I mean, they, they managed to really isolate the big issues uh, of the, the attacks themselves, the, the human story, the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of, of Iraq. Um, and and they, they did manage to get nearly all of it in uh, right up until the end of August. So they just about got in the fall of Kabul and, and, and the return of the Taliban, but extraordinarily well done. Um, Books-wise, Shuggy Bain, uh, by Douglas Stewart. I read that in August and, again, was thoroughly traumatised by the <laughs> the hard realism of it. <laughs> so I think I'm, I'm due some kind of uh, light reading. I suppose that's one way to make your reality seem lighter, to just read even more, <laughs> read and watch even more depressing stuff. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. To Marie Lecomte. Thank you. And to our special guest, Tony Condley. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week and the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Remember, if you like this podcast, then why not forward it to two or three friends? It helps spread the word. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, time for some shout-outs to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Andrew Lloyd... James Hall and Judith Hughes. Big thanks for your support from me to Stacey Williams, Jasper Alexander and Archangel. And finally, many thanks from me to Tess McMahon, Lewis Eustace and Grant Cartledge. Thank you and see you next time. Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer is Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Yelena Sofronovic and Jacob Archbold. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieberman. And the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.